you might have your way amongst us individually, but amongst us as a church here gathered in this place in Milford. So Lord, be amongst your people, we pray. In Jesus' name. We're going to just uh, share in a prayer of confession now. As we listen to God's word, and we often very quickly pick up on the blessings in God's word, it's also worth remembering, I think, whenever God speaks, he also speaks sometimes words of you know, pay attention, correction as well. And sometimes God's word re should remind us equally of those things as well as blessing. So uh, let us pray. Lord Jesus, we know you as the way, the truth, and the life. We recognize once more this morning, through your word, your rightful claim on our lives in Christ. Forgive us for our foolish ways. If when we allow religious habits to become a substitute for the new life you offer each one of us in Christ. Lord, have mercy on us, your beloved and yet often wayward people. And within that good news, Forgive us our sins, we pray, and help us to submit all that we are to your life-giving spirit, that you may have your way, for Jesus' sake. Amen. And before we come to look at that passage in some more detail, uh, we're going to sing once again a more reflective song, and we're going to remain seated to sing this beautiful Lord, wonderful Saviour. Alongside conversation. We're told by the scriptures Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he's a member of Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of the Jews. And he first appears in John's Gospel here in our reading. But it's not the only place he appears. You'll find him also in chapter 7, later on in chapter 7, where he is in the Sanhedrin, and he's actually um, protesting with them against the course of action they're seeking to take in persecuting Jesus. And you also find him once more right along in chapter 19, where along with Joseph of Arimathea, he assists in the burial of Jesus. So this is Nicodemus, just as a reminder there's no later record of him in the scriptures. He doesn't appear in Acts. He doesn't appear in any of Paul's letters or whatever. Um, but I think we can see, even in the journey he has in John, very much of a man coming to faith and personal belief in Jesus as well. He's clearly also a learned man. He's a learned man, um, a religious man, I imagine his biblical knowledge, of the Old Testament anyway, would put us all to shame. Um, <clears throat> he wasn't just someone, I don't think, who's just searching for knowledge, as in up here in our heads, but he's a real sincere seeker of the truth. Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. So he's commended in that sense by Jesus, isn't he? Israel's teacher. So I think of Nicodemus as a man of integrity, Yes, a very law-abiding Jew, a righteous Jew in that sense, but someone seeking to live out their faith as well. A fine example maybe of a religious man, um, if you want to look at it like that. He comes to Jesus at night, we're told, and he says, Rabbi, which is amazing in itself. Here's Israel's teacher coming to someone else and going, teacher. That's exactly how he's dressing Jesus. He sees Jesus as another teacher, 
And he acknowledges Jesus has come from God. He's, he's obviously been aware of the miracles that Jesus has been performing, the healing, the casting out of demons. Um, and he believes through those miracles that Jesus is obviously God sent. Um, And he comes, as I say, it's an act of humility. Nicodemus is a humble learner, isn't he? I mean, sometimes when people are at the top of their game, as we say, they're not very good at some learning from others still. You know, they think they really have to go have, have it all. And yet Nicodemus is clearly a man who, regardless how you know, clever he is, knows he needs to learn more from Jesus. And I think Nicodemus, therefore, is an example to us. I think he's an example of both from his perseverance, his desire for God's word. He wants to hear more so that he can live a better life. And I imagine also because, as Israel's teacher, he wants to share that with others as well. He doesn't just want it for his own self, but he wants to you know, gather more of the word so that he can actually share it faithfully to those he serves. And it's a striking thing that within this, you know, this, this man, if he'd walked in here in today's age, he might have been wearing a nice suit, you know, and, you know, you know, and we'd go, ooh. Uh, but Jesus sees him as someone in need, doesn't he? Straight away. Jesus sees him as someone in need, and not just a little bit needy, someone who is in big need, desperate need, right? So that's how Jesus sees him. You know, we might see the worldly man, Jesus sees straight through the worldly man and the worldly woman. And Jesus says uh, there's a central thing here that he needs to understand. And this is a matter of rebirth. And uh, I'm just going to click on one slide. Jesus says, verse 3, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. I say it's not an optional statement. It's a very clear statement, and it's something we all need to hear as well. It's a very important thing. I tell you the truth translates, it, it almost back like saying, Amen, Amen. It's like Jesus saying that, you know, this is an absolute thing. This is an absolute, you know, this isn't a debatable, notional, uh, optional thing. He emphasizes with that phrase, I tell you the truth, the fundamental importance of what he's saying not just to Nicodemus, but to each one of us here. I suppose it's a reminder that we can all have, and it's a dangerous thing in, in the walk of faith we share as Christians, we can also build up a sense of religious righteousness, which over the years may go a little bit undetected, but it can become very destructive. We can think, we can be seen as a very spiritual person, or oh, it's a dangerous place to be, that is, a very spiritual person. Right, where we then we build ourselves up and our pride and we feel good about that. Right? And there's a good side to this, by the way. But at the same time, the danger is we, fail, we start recognising how dependent we are on Jesus. We have no position to be proud of ourselves in our faith. You know, because at the end of the day, it is all of Jesus, all of God, what is happening in our lives. So regardless how knowledgeable we might be in God's word, without that rebirth, that spiritual rebirth, we will remain dead in our sins. And if we remain dead in our sins, then the door of the kingdom is still closed to us. 
all we have, even if we have many, many things, wealth and fame and many, many things, those things will only ever be worldly and passing. It's a sobering thought. Especially, I think, for those who might consider themselves a little bit better than others, more religious, more spiritual, whatever it be. I wonder how Nicodemus felt. Because right? us Christians, you know, we go, yeah, okay, I, got, I can see that. But Nicodemus, here's this Jew, and he would, he's been built up. I mean, I mean, Paul had the same thing, didn't he? He said, don't care for all these things now, save for Christ, you know. Um, I wonder how Nicodemus felt. But how does it also make us feel in the present day? Initially, it seems that Nicodemus, for all of his learning, doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. In fact, he interprets it in a very worldly and physical manner. He literally understands it literally. How can a man be born when he's old, he asks. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh will only give birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. I think Nicodemus quite understandably, quite naturally, tries to imagine how someone can be reborn physically, and in so doing he misses the point altogether. But I think it's worth having here that just as physical physical rebirth is impossible impossible for us, so in one sense, so is spiritual rebirth. It's impossible for us to achieve of ourselves. Being a patient teacher, our Lord is undeterred by Nicodemus' dullness. And he seeks to explain a bit more. To be born of water is referring to our physical birth. But to be born again means to be born of the spirit. And both are necessary. A bit like when we have uh, two parents for physical uh, birth. In one sense, there's also two parents of spiritual birth. And that is both the word and the spirit. Peter writes in one of his letter, 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. I've got a froggy throat. <coughs> All right, back again. Peter writes in, in 1 Peter, You have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and the enduring word of God, God's word. The spirit of God opens that word to us. And when the sinner believes and trusts in that word, the spirit imparts the life of God, the spirit of God to the individual. In verse 5, Jesus was also not teaching that new birth came through water baptism. Sometimes these verses have been interpreted as, you know, you must be baptised. All right? Um, I think if you look later on in this reading, you see that the emphasis is on believing, <clears throat> because salvation comes through faith. And the evidence of that salvation is the witness and the presence of the Spirit within. 
Paul wrote in Romans, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit, if the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Water baptism is certainly part of our obedience to Christ and our witness for Christ, but it is not the means of our salvation. That remains our response to the word through the action of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus teaching this teacher of Israel, he teaches that spiritual birth is essential for anybody wanting to enter the kingdom. The reason I think Jesus often says the kingdom is always near, the kingdom is near, repent. When the word is preached, it is a word that still requires a response of, from us of repentance and faith. So the first thing is really all people need Jesus, even the most religious, the most spiritual, the most devout. And that remains true, obviously, in our walk of faith. We should not lose sight of that. But then he goes on to talk about the wind, and I thought this was a good one for today, with the wind whistling around the, around the building. Verse 8 says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everybody born of the Spirit. This word wind in the Hebrew and the Greek is, uh, is often translated spirit. And one of the symbols of the Spirit of God in the Bible, I'd say, is that, that symbol of wind. So like the wind, the Spirit is invisible and yet powerful. We can't explain it really or predict the movement of the wind. And Jesus uses that symbol to try and help us understand uh, something of the Spirit. I imagine, um, as he said those words, Nicodemus would have recalled probably maybe Ezekiel, uh, chapter 37, where the prophet saw a valley of dead bones. But when he prophesied to the, bo to the bones, in other words, spoke God's word to the bones, the Spirit came upon them and gave them new life. Again, it's an example of a combination of the Spirit and the Word working together for salvation. Rebirth from above is a necessity. You must be born again. But it is also a mystery. When people are born of the Spirit, it's a bit like the wind, which cannot be fully explained or predicted where it comes and where it goes. But Jesus now goes on to make clear that it's not just the earthly Jesus that Nicodemus is being told to put their trust in, the healer, the teacher, the miracle-working Jesus. But Jesus now goes on to explain something to Nicodemus that would have been even harder for him to understand. And that is that his trust needs to be in the crucified Jesus. And this is really where those verses come into the very centre as well. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everybody who believes in him may have eternal life. And then those, for God so loved the world that they gave his one and only Son, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That story from Moses comes from Numbers 21. And again, I would have thought it would be very familiar to Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel. It is a story of sin, of a nation that had rebelled 
against God and faced judgment as well. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. This is from Numbers 21, verse 6. Then the Lord sent the themness snakes amongst them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take these snakes away. And so Moses prayed for the people. And when he prayed for the people, God told Moses to make a brass serpent and to lift it up on a pole for all to see. Any stricken person who looked to the serpent would immediately be healed. So it's a story of faith when people looked up in faith and were healed. And that sort of uh, word lifting up has a dual meaning in the, in the Gospels. It means to be crucified, as we see it often in the use in John's Gospel, Jesus being lifted up. And it also means uh, to be glorified. And in this Gospel, John points out that our Lord's crucifixion was not the end of his glory, as we would expect, but the means of his glory. Much as a serpent was lifted up on that pole in Moses' day, so the Son of God will be lifted up upon a cross. For exactly the same reason, to save sinners from death. In the camp of Israel, the solution to their serpent problem, their snake problem, was not in trying to just kill the serpents or making medicine to deal with the, the bites or pretending they weren't even present. The only answer was to look up in faith to this symbol. And it was an offer made to everybody, not just to those who'd been better than the others, you know, but it was made to all who were there. Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that the whole world, in a sense, has been bitten by sin, and the wages of that sin are death in a spiritual sense. But God has now sent his son to die, not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Let me tell a little story. Um, January the 6th, 1850, going back a bit, isn't it? A snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester. And a teenage boy was unable to get to the church that he usually attended. So he made his way to a nearby primitive Methodist chapel, where a rather ill-prepared layman was substituting for the absent preacher. His text was Isaiah 45:22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Now, for many months, this young te teenager had been rather miserable and under a deep conviction. But though he had been brought up in the church, his father and his grandfather were preachers, he didn't have that firm assurance of faith. Now, this poorly prepared substitute minister didn't have much more to say, really, so he kept repeating that text. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. He said a man doesn't need to go to college to learn how to look. Anybody can look. A child can look. 
Now, about that time, he sees the visitor sitting off to one side. He points to him, he says, young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look on Christ. And that young man did look upon Christ in faith. And that's the story how Charles Spurgeon came to faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The difference between perishing and living, between condemnation and salvation, is a faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus could quite well have come into this world as judge and destroyer. But he came in love, sent by the Father. He came to this world as saviour. And as saviour, he died on the cross for us. He became that uplifted serpent, which we are just told, look at, look up, look at this. The serpent of Moses' days brought physical healing to dying Jews, but Jesus Christ gives eternal life to all who would turn to him in repentance and faith. It's something I think we do initially as we come to faith, as that light comes on, we go, yes, I see who Jesus is, and that, I see enough to say yes to him. But I think it's also something we should remember every day as we walk in faith, that we continue to look up to our Lord Jesus, who is both Lord and Saviour. It's such a simple thing to do, not based on what we know, really, or who we are, but just trusting in God and his word. Truly, light has come into the world. When Jesus was here on this world, a wonderful light. And yet, sadly, Jesus knows that such, the presence of such a light whilst attracting some, will also repel others. So I'm just moving on in the last few verses. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because of their, de their deeds are evil. Everybody who does evil hates light, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Light and darkness, major images in John's Gospel. As you go through, in fact, if you remember verse 4 of the first chapter says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Why do people choose not to come into the light? Jesus says, quite simply, it is because they love the deeds of darkness and they want to persist in them. The closer we come to the light, the more our real inner selves are exposed. Sometimes people choose not to come to Christ and they seem to have a lot of very good reasons in their head why they don't wish to come to Christ. But often, deeper down, there's more likely to be more moral and spiritual blindness that keeps them from moving from darkness into light. I think Nicodemus did finally come into the light. He approached Jesus initially in the dark, both literally and metaphorically, 
But I think we can say he journeyed from the night of confusion and doubt into the sunlight of confession and faith. And that changed everything about his life. It changed everything about his life. As I referred to earlier, later in John's Gospel, we read of this situation. This is chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he'd feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of the preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I think Nicodemus had come a long way. He might have been Israel's teacher. He might have been a very important man. But in meeting Jesus at night, he had come into the place, moved away from maybe what was we consider more religious observance into the light of living faith and trust in Jesus. I think Nicodemus finally had realised that this man who he'd met on that night, who'd taken the time, who'd been patient and tried to teach him about the necessity of rebirth, was now that same one who had given up his life for him so that he, Nicodemus, might be reborn. I imagine caring for Jesus' body late that day must have made that truth very real to Nicodemus as both he and Joseph gently carried the bloodied remains of their Lord and their Saviour into that tomb. When Peter declared these truths on the day of Pentecost, we read, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what can we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and all your children and for those who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. That conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus deals with the very heart of the gospel. Very heart, the personal heart of gospel. And it changed Nicodemus's life forever. And hopefully it is also changing ours. Amen.